And peace to you again. It's great to be back. It's great to be with you. Thank you for your kindness, for your love, for the time of fellowship that we already had with each other. Love. Love. One of the greatest gods of our time. Love sells. Love is seductive. Love is in the air we breathe. In the culture we live in, from music to movies to advertising. In our culture, you know, to love is to be free from any shackles or barriers. Love cannot have limits, they say, because love must be free to love without restrictions of any kind. Any barriers or restrictions you place, just restrain love. For this reason, people believe, love cannot coexist with any type of authority because where there is the exercise of power, there can be no love for sure. So, for example, if two people love each other, then there can be nothing to stop them from being happy. Love, they say, is so popular, it's so essential to our culture, that we can today justify basically anything if we give love as a reason. Love becomes, so to say, its own limit, as long as love is given as a justification. The boundaries of desire and satisfaction are limited only by consent. Infidelity, fornication, for example, are not a limit to love as long as there is consent from the parties. Love, we are told, is to unconditionally accept any decision and action that someone makes. Because if you don't accept it, it's because you are unloving. But more than acceptance, if someone does not approve the other, then it's even worse. It's hate speech. If you do not approve and don't accept that a man can identify as a woman and actually become a woman, then you don't love that person because apparently you don't accept them as they are. Love, again, as we are told, has to be organic, non-institutional, because after all, we can't put limits on love. Again, any limits that we put on love just suffocates it, so to say. That's why commitment has to be banished from our language and practice, because love blows where it wills and cannot be controlled. You see, love in this way cannot be educated, much less can be a responsibility. Love cannot be a commandment because it cannot be forced. It cannot be cultivated. Love, to be love, must be spontaneous. At least that's what we hear every day. But, but you see, this love, this modern love, has feats of clay. Because it's a love that is sentimental, individualistic, 
and consumerist. You see, modern love is sentimental because it, be, it depends on how each, peop, each people feels. You see, emotion is king and exerts its authority over everything else. You see, modern love is fleeting, circumstantial, variable, just as our emotions are. This love lasts only as long as the excitement lasts. So unfortunately, it's no wonder that modern love is so sexualized because this love is so dependent on feeling that it becomes capricious, cannot be trusted. You see the till death do us part just means today as long as the feeling lasts. Modern love is also individualistic because it's all about self. It's all about how I feel. It's all about my pleasure. This love is not something objective that we can define. We can not say what really is. In fact, it cannot be evaluated, let alone questioned. It is subjective because it is defined by and totally dependent on how I feel. You see, this love, this modern love, is a true dictator because it is irrefutable. If I say that I love, who can question me? This love is about the self, its satisfaction, fulfillment. And woe to you if you question it. Modern love is nothing more than a celebration of selfishness. You see, what is homosexuality if not the celebration of self-love, of the one that is like me? And modern love is also consumerist because this love is a love based on appetite, is based on satisfaction. This love treats the other as an object for personal satisfaction. Modern love is like a spoiled child. I want my desires satisfied here and now. And the satisfaction of love is done, of course, in a kind of an open market type of deal. You see, the Bible also speaks about love. But although the term, the word is the same, its meaning and practice, it's a completely different thing. And something much better. And something much more trustworthy and durable. So I invite you to open your Bibles. In 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. before we read this text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is your church that meets in this place that comes together again to hear from you. We believe that the words that we are about to read are your words because they were written by men, but men that were moved by the Holy Spirit. We believe that these words are living and active. And so we ask, Father, that in your kindness and in your grace, that they might not return void, that you might use your word for the purpose that you have given it to us, for our own salvation, for the salvation of souls, 
and for our own sanctification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. This is the Word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, in John's letter, in this letter, is not the first time that we come across with the theme of love. John had already said that to love is to walk in the light, chapter 2, verse 8, and he speaks in a moral sense. To love is to live according to the purpose that we were created, the purpose that we were saved. In fact, as John goes on to say, love is the evidence of our salvation. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know, note, note this is clear, is something that we can actually achieve the knowledge. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. This is how we know. But now John offers us the best and greatest reason for our love. Because now he grounds love in our responsibility to love on God's character Himself. That's why today's sermon is divided in three simple points. Number one, God is love. Number two, love made visible. And number three, Christian love. So, number one, God is love. 
See verse 8 and see verse 16. That says specifically the phrase, has the phrase that is unique to John. God is love. And then verse 7. Love is from God. You see, while the culture we live elevates love to the status of God, you see, people tend to see, if they don't articulate it this way, love is God. It's kind of the highest thing ever. The Bible affirms something completely different, is that God is love. You see, before God created anything, God is love. It is His essence, His nature. Love is not something outside of God by which we can even evaluate if God is loving or not. It is its own nature. His own personhood is love. You see, we human beings may or not love, but none of us can say, I am love. But God is love. Love is who God is. And because God is love, note this, it is God and only God that can define what love is. Because He is love. It is His essence. That's why love, we read in verse 7, that's why love must come from God and can only come from God. Because love, you see, is not something subjective, created and defined by the me, by the self. It is something objective because it is God Himself. It is not possible to know what true love is without knowing God. It is not possible to love without our love coming and flowing from God Himself. That's why we read further on, chapter 4 and verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. You see, it's a consequence. I cannot properly love if I don't know God. I cannot properly love if I don't know first the love that God had for me and God Himself. You see, God's love takes precedence over our love. First, because He is love and we are not. Secondly, because we wouldn't know how to love if He didn't show us what love is. And finally, it's also God who teaches us, but also who enables us to properly love. You see, anything that can be called love that does not originate in God is not true love. It's a counterfeit product. It's false, even though it may have some similarities with reality. It's nothing more than a cheap imitation. You see, the world has illegitimately hijacked this word, this term, love, to use it for its own purposes, according to each one's desires. But remember this, God is love. And therefore, He is the only one who has the authority to say what love is. But at the same time, note, note this, it's very important for us to say God is love, but note that saying that God is love, it's not the only thing that we have to say about God. You see, this is important because as we already mentioned, the world has elevated a certain definition of love to divine status. But again, saying that God is love is not the same thing as saying that God is only love. 
For example, in this same epistle, before speaking of God's love, John had already told us, chapter 1, verse 5, and this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. So God not only is love, he is also light. You see this metaphor that has uh, many implications throughout Scripture because it points out to God's majesty, his self-sufficiency, his transcendency. In this epistle refers particularly to his perfection and consequence moral purity. But you see, God's love needs to be qualified by all his other attributes. We know what God's love is by knowing God and knowing who he is and qualifying his attributes with one another. So when we say that God is love, his love must be characterized by what he is. Because God is love and light... God's love is necessarily a holy and perfect love. God's love is morally pure. That's no immorality in God's love. Because God is love, but He is also justice, His love is necessarily a just love. You see, again, His attributes are qualified by the others. But another one of God's added attributes that can be a problem for us as we seek to know God is the fact that God is also spirit. Don't we teach this to our children in the catechism? Who is God? God is a spirit and does not have body like man. Right? Which means that God is also invisible. So, if God is love, and God comes from, and love uh, comes from God, so we can only know love if we know God, and we can only love if we know God's love, then, if God is spirit and invisible, how can we know Him, and how can we know what love is? So, that's what we read then in John 1. 18, no one has ever seen God. It is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father who has revealed Him. That's what brings us to point number two. Point number one, God is love. Point number two is love made visible. See verse nine. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent His own Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. So we learn here that God's love is practical. It's an action. It's not just a statement. Because God is love, it means that He does all things in love. And His love has been manifested. His love has been revealed to us and made visible in a perfect way, in the person of the Lord Jesus. So, how can we know God's love? It has been perfectly revealed in the person of His Son. Read verse 10. He loved us and sent His Son. Or verse 14. The Father has sent His Son. 
That's how he manifested. That, that's how he made visible in a perfect way what his love is, who he is, his character. So remember this, God's love is not just a statement or a definition or something abstract. It is a practical thing. But it also stems from his will. His love, note, note this, God's love was something planned. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the plan he had agreed with the Father from eternity. This idea that love has to be spontaneous is a big lie. In fact, the greatest demonstration of love in this world that this world has ever seen was planned even before the world existed. As we read in Ephesians 1, 4-5, God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us to become children of adoption. Brothers and sisters, do not believe this absurdity that love has to be spontaneous. The best way that you can love your children is by the intentional acts that you do every day. Even when your emotions are not there. <laughs> Who has emotions when our kid cries in the middle of the night and we need to go there? Right? No, love is an act and results comes out of our will. That's what we do when we get married. We make a decision and we make a vow that should be based on will, not feelings. Because if it is on feelings, it will disappear. If it is based on the will, it will last. But God has not only shown His love, He also gives us the ability to receive and understand His love. See verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. You see, the ability to understand God's love for us comes from God Himself. Not only did He love us by sending His Son, He convinces us of His love through the Holy Spirit. So, what did this demonstration of love consist of? John tells us at least three things. Note, number one, he's, by sending His Son... Number one, see verse 14, to be the Savior of the world. How did God de demonstrate His love? By sending His Son, number one, to be the Savior of the world. Verse 14, which presupposes, of course, the need of salvation. We were condemned before God because of our disobedience and rebellion against God. Number two, that He sent His Son, verse 9, nine that we might live through Him, which means, of course, that if we need to be given a new life, and if we live through Him, we were dead. Of course, it, this does not refer to our physical life, but our spiritual life. That was our position before God. We were dead in our sins. Number three, see verse 10, to be the propitiation for our sins, which means that sin exists, and that sin carries a guilt that demands a penalty. So let's stop for some time to understand what these things mean for us, what they reveal about God. 
these three reasons, verse 14, 9, and 10, of why God sent His Son, show us actually a lot of facets of God Himself, His character, and of His love. For example, teaches us that God's love is pure and just. You see, God does not approve all things. Unlike modern love, which demands approval for all things I desire to do, God's love is actually just. True love has limits set by God Himself. You see, these limits are actually just and good. Remember that our sin alienated us from God. And God must be both pure and just. He cannot just wash away sins. We were dead in our sins. We needed to be saved from our condition. Remember this. Justice that cannot or does not condemn is not just. You see, God's love cannot just erase our sin like magic. The sentence of a punishment must be carried out. Just imagine this. Imagine that a murderer appears in court. And the judge looks at that person, and after the whole trial, looks at that person and says, I know that you're guilty, but I'm very merciful, and I'm very good, so I'm going to let you go with no penalty at all. Was he a just judge? Let's put this in a more practical way. The person that he just murdered is a person from your family. Would he be a just judge? No. Justice must be carried out. We know this intuitively. Why would not sin against God be exactly the same thing? The penalty must be paid. Because we broke God's law. Condemnation is actually something just. It's not just because God is capricious. It's actually because God is good and God is just. Otherwise, He would not be perfect. We would not respect an unjust God. But our God is just. He could not simply wash away sins like magic. That's why the gospel is so amazing. It's because God, in spite of our sin, His Son took our nature in order to die for our sins so that God might be loving in the same way that He is just, without collision. And God keeps His character intact. You see, God's love is sacrificial. As Jesus said about Himself, Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Remember, brothers and sisters, for us to, be, to have life, he had to die. Jesus died for love. You see, modern love is selfish. Modern love serves the interests of the self. God's love is a love that serves whatever I want. But instead of this, we have a greater love, like we read in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
God's love is pure grace because it is a gift that is given to those who deserve otherwise, you and me. God's love is perfect. You see, because His love has found a way to expose and pay for the guilt of our sin without destroying us as we deserve. Do you understand this? Do you understand how amazing our God is? How perfect He is in all His doings? Only our God could do this. Isn't this a much more amazing love than the, the love that our world serves? This is God's love. As John had already written in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. See what kind of love the Father has shown to us. We are His children. But at the same time, note that our God is completely perfect. His love is not limited to the Father and the Son. The fact that the Father sent His Son, His only Son, to save us, it is not enough to make salvation a reality in our lives. Just as we didn't have the ability to save ourselves, we also don't have the ability to believe and repent on our own. We are by nature selfish, self-centered. The message of the gospel of this love of God is offensive to a rebellious nature that thinks only of itself. How then can we receive this love? How does this love become a reality in our lives? Look at verses 13 to 16. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So how can we know these things? How can we be convinced of these things? Who gives us this ability? It is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Just as he sent his son, the Father also sent the Holy Spirit so that we can know, understand and remain in these things and practice these things. It is the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, who has the ability to convince us of sin, of righteousness, in judgment. John 16, 8. It is when we are convinced of these things that we can then understand and accept God's love. You see, the conjunction and, the word and, at the beginning of the verses 14 and 16, actually tells us a consequence. You see, it is through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us that, verse 16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It is also the Holy Spirit who has given us and enables us to believe and confess. Verse 14, we testify. You see it as a consequence, 
of the Spirit that was given. We testify that the Father sent the Son. In verse 15, that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, when uh, Jesus asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? Do you remember that in Matthew 16? And then, at a certain point, the disciples said various things. John the Baptist, a prophet, whatever. But then, Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? And then it tells us, Simon Peter answered and said, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did Jesus answer him? You're amazing, Peter. You're so smart. Was it? Was it? Are you with me? Still? Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was a gift. He did not come to that conclusion because he was smarter than others. He came to that conclusion because it was revealed to him. You see, Peter's ability and discernment did not come from within him, but from the Holy Spirit who convinced him of that truth. As John Stott wrote, we know that we abide in God, in God in us, because He has given us His Spirit. Verse 13. And we know that He has given us His Spirit because we have come to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 15. And to abide in love. Verse 16. Which brings us to point number three and final point. Christian love. So, God is love. Love made visible in Christian love. You see, our confession of who Jesus is cannot be just a mere parroting of learning concepts. This is one of the most common mistakes, I think, in our circles, which is to confuse faith with a mere intellectual exercise in the regurgitation of certain propositions. Do you understand what I am saying? which is, we can teach that to children, we can teach that to everyone. Everyone can learn to say the right things. But something very different is for that to come to our hearts. You see, our faith must be confessed and professed in words. We have just seen even that John speaks of testifying, of confessing, of bearing witness. But true faith is not just words. Now understand what I'm saying now. God's love is is not unconditional because it has a purpose. You see, God's love is not unconditional because it has a purpose. Jesus, as John says, was sent to be our Savior, to pay for the guilt of our sins and to give us a new life. In His holiness, justice, and love, God reminds us that he accepts us as we are, but He does not accept us to remain as we are. As someone said. You see, someone who understands God's love not only professes truth, but as John has said before, he practices the truth. 
This is why note that the commandment remains a necessary consequence of our salvation. Verse 7 and verse 21. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Verse 21. In this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Note that contrary to modern culture which tells us that love can only be love if it is spontaneous, true love is the result of the will. Love is a commandment that originates in God and flows from our understanding of God's love for us. You see, love is a decision rather than an emotion. Christians believe that love is an affection, but love is more than an emotion because it is possible to love even when our emotions betray us. And at the same time, it's interesting to note that John exhorts us to love our brothers and sisters. Here we don't have a general command to our neighbor. Note, note this. But he says to love one another. He's speaking to the church. So he's speaking the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is this so? Because just as God's love manifests itself in a particular and in a higher way in the salvation of his people, so too with us, our love must be exercised in a particular way towards the members of the church, of the people of God. Our greatest covenant is with those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is an important reminder, even for Southern culture. You see, your family of flesh is not more important than the church. Otherwise, it's vice versa. It's your brothers and sisters in the faith. Jesus had even to remind his own brothers and mother about that truth. These are my brothers and sisters, those who hear my word. And it is important for us to remember that, that the love that we share with one another in the context of our covenant community should be the greatest expression of love. The love that we have for our brothers and sisters is the visible proof that our profession of faith is genuine. Verse 16, God is love and he who is in love is in God, and God in him, or abides in him. You see, the love that we have for our brothers and sisters is this greater demonstration, but also proof and evidence of our understanding of God's love for us. Verse 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or the end of verse 17, Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Our love is to be similar to God's love. As Paul tells us when speaking of the love of a husband that he should have for his wife, when he writes in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ died for His church. Likewise, we are called to love the church in the same way. John continues here to teach that 
We shouldn't believe everything that people say. And this is very important in a culture where everybody says that they know Jesus and they love Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You see, profession of faith is not enough. Saying, I love Jesus is not enough. Saying, I believe in Jesus is not enough. Saying, I'm going to church is not enough. How can we, in this case, test whether someone's profession of faith is true? Actually, John tells us, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, John, as he uses in the remaining of this letter, insists on a harsh, incisive, and deliberately offensive language to provoke. If someone says that they love God, but their love for the church is not real and visible, that person is a liar. There is no other way to put it according to John, according to the Bible. The apostle, you know, he is speaking in the context of some, see chapter 2, verse 19, who continue to profess to be Christians, but who had abandoned the church. For John, their abandonment of the church was the visible and clear proof that their profession of faith was false. You see, they were among us, but they were not from us. Because if they were of us, they would have remained with us. That's John's conclusion. For him, is, for the apostle, is very simple. And for us, it should be simple also. Even if it is hard. Even if it has to do with our loved ones. Because the proof, actually, of our faith, of our understanding of God's love, is how we love one another. And perhaps this has been one of the greatest hindrances for the evangelistic effect of the church. Because there is so much offer, there are so many supermarkets that I can go to, that I can change church whenever I want to. I don't like the pastor's opinion, I don't like this decision, Uh, I don't like that person, so I'm out of here to a church that is more of my liking. Why is John so insistent in his letter? You see, first, because just as in the apostles' time, and this is important to us, we should be like John, there are still people that try to deceive the church with their words. And especially, let me say, in Reformed circles. We are so good in articulating things. We are so good in knowing all the minutia of this doctrine, of that doctrine, of that doctrine. We are so good in pointing out the errors, doctrinal errors, in supposed, other supposed errors of other churches. That many times we are, for us it is sufficient that someone can articulate very well the message of the gospel. But for John, apparently is not. And we should know that. But we should also pay attention because God, John actually wants the church. And this text should be also an encouragement for us, an encouragement in our faith, and even in the certainty of our salvation. 
John wants their faith to be visible in the love that they have for one another because the measure of their love is the measure of the certainty of their salvation. I'm not overstating. That's what John is saying. I'm going to say it again. John wants their faith to be visible in the love that they have for one another because the measure of their love is the measure of the certainty of their salvation. Look at verses 17 and 18. By this is love perfected in us or with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Why is John so concerned? It's not because he wants them lost. It's not because he is too harsh. It's not because he has too much of a higher standards. It's because he is concerned with their salvation. Because he says, I want you to have confidence today of your future judgment. I want you to have the certainty of your salvation. But then he continues, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, John's aim is confidence, is trust. You see, this is how he had begun his letter. It was his purpose, 1 John 1, 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So, John, in the context of a number of people who had left the church, who were once considered brothers, and today have clearly shown that they are not. The question is, how can they be sure of their own salvation? How can they know that they will not be like the others? How can they know that they will persevere till the end? And for John, is simple, by the love that they have for one another. Because their love for the church is the proof that God's love is in them. And if God's love is in them, then they can be confident that when Jesus returns, they will be accepted. It is this love, says John, that casts out fear, the fear of condemnation. You see, we no longer need to be afraid of God because although we are sinners... He loved us, and the Lord Jesus died for our sins. How do we know this? How do we know that Jesus died for me? Not that Jesus died for sinners, but for me. By the love with which I love the brothers. You you see, it's the proof and the evidence so that we might be encouraged and have confidence in the day of judgment. So, brothers, hear this exhortation. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Verse 21, In this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
we continue to be constantly amazed by your love. A love that is perfect. A love that is pure. A love that is just. Oh, Father, our desire is that we might increase in our understanding of your love for us. So that our love might be more and more like your love. Oh, Father, help us because we do confess that we are surrounded by so many wrong definitions of love. That this world is trying to convince us of a love that is not trustworthy, of a love that is not immutable, of a love that is ever-changing. But you are not. And we want to know that love, and we want to love as you love. And particularly, I pray for this church. Oh, Father, that the love that the members have for one another might be a good image and reflection of the way that you have loved us. Father, I pray that you might encourage these brothers and sisters in their faith, in their confidence. And as they grow in love for each other, that you might also grow their confidence that when your Son returns, they will be received in glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.